Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. For solidarity, for peace, for freedom, for democracy, for the independence of Ukraine. This is not only a fight for Ukraine, it's a fight for all of us because these are the European values. We're in Prague for this year's Summit of Cities, where dozens of mayors and local representatives gathered to discuss the practical ways their cities can help their Ukrainian counterparts. Held at Camp, the Centre for Architecture and Metropolitan Planning, there was also a chance to discuss best practices, future goals and dealing with the challenges posed by the war. So join me and the urbanist Carlotta Rebello as we bring you a snapshot of the conversations held this week and a reminder that cities need to stick together. Ukraine's fight impacts us all. This is The Urbanist. At almost every urbanism conference we go to, the same question and book gets mentioned. What if mayors rule the world? If you were in Prague this week, however, you'd be forgiven for thinking they already do. We started the week in the Czech capital, where mayors, government officials and international agencies' representatives had all gathered to discuss assistance to Ukraine, post-war rebuilding and cooperation at the Prague Summit of Cities. The event coincided with the annual meeting of the Pact of Free Cities, a network established by mayors in 2019 to defend democracy and fight populism in Europe. On Monday, the Pact of Free Cities welcomed six new members, including Kyiv, bringing the total to 33 cities. I am Zdeněk Hřib, nowadays the mayor of Prague. We have founded the Pact of Free Cities as the V4 Capitals Mayors in 2019. Uh, that means Prague, Warsaw, Budapest and Bratislava. At that time it seemed like a natural cooperation of the like-minded mayors. And we wanted to show to the European Union and also others that they have a reliable partner in the region so we made a value-based alliance. We want to show that the cities in V4 are still strongholds of democracy and freedom, which was not the case in basically the whole V4 countries. Nowadays the times have changed, but still the situation in some of the countries is very, very complicated, at least to say diplomatically. And basically everyone was invited to join us if they share the same values, if they want also to stand against anti-liberal tendencies or xenophobia or inequalities or even climate change denial. Now the organization is only three years old. You already have 33 members, which is amazing. And included in that is Kyiv. What kind of support have you been able to offer the, the city? Well, we have visited Kiev together with uh, Rafał Traskowski, the mayor of Warsaw, eight days before the invasion. It was at a time when our ministry had already issued warnings, do not go there, but we already promised, so we went there, obviously. We didn't really thought that the invasion is possible, but in eight days, basically, the worst nightmares come through. 
Well, since then, we had made a lot of steps. Some of them were rather symbolic, like flying the Kiev and Ukrainian flag on our city hall, which is still flying there. But also a very, very concrete and specific steps to support Ukraine. For example, on the second day of the invasion, we have sent the money to the non-for-profit humanitarian organization in Czech Republic. It's called Člověk v tisni, a man in need. Then, of course, we have to take care about the Ukrainian refugees. We've got more than 90,000 Ukrainian refugees here. We have created the assistance center. The peak number was 3,700 people per one day. It was 24-7 operation. But then we moved towards the start of the reconstruction of the Ukrainian city. So recently we had approved that we will donate 20 trams to the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv. They are using a similar type of the trams, so they know how to operate, they want to fix them eventually. And also we have donated some buses to the city of Khmelnytsky. Before that we even donated emergency vehicles from our ambulance. How did you take those out of your existing stock? Did you have excess or were these vehicles that were going to be retired or how did you find them? Because it's most cities already pushed to have enough of those things themselves. Yeah, we have a lot of trams. <laughs> <laughs> this was a two-day affair where more than policy, offers of building materials or donations of trams and buses... It was the solidarity displayed between these local leaders that stopped you in your tracks. We heard how a delegation of mayors didn't hesitate to head to Kyiv, ignoring warnings to stay put, or how despite these cities having their own issues with unemployment, housing crises or overcrowded schools, their doors were immediately opened to Ukrainian families fleeing the war, as one of the new members of the pact told us. My name is Franziska Giffey. I'm the governing mayor of Berlin. We are really delighted that Berlin joined the Pact of Free Cities. In this morning, we have signed the Declaration for Freedom, for Equal Rights, for Democracy and for the Rule of Law, and also for a strong commitment of solidarity with Ukraine. And Berlin is one of the cities who, in the last months, we had a lot of people arriving in Berlin. We had been the central hub of arriving all over Germany, more than 300,000 people from Ukraine arrived in Berlin. We set up an arrival center and we took care for these people in the first days and nights. And uh, about 100,000 people stayed in Berlin. So we take care to integrate them into work, to take care for the kids. We have more than 6,000 kids in our schools and also in the kindergartens. And we try to support them as much as we can to enable them to arrive in Germany, but also to have the contact to Ukraine, because many of them hope to go back home. And for the kids, it's very important to have their relation to their schools. And that's why we support that. We will build up an international German-Ukrainian school in Berlin. We build up the first cultural institute of Ukraine outside Ukraine. So we will have an, an Ukrainian house in Berlin for the first time. 
And we really try hard to give also humanitarian help to Ukraine. So we have a lot of people who made donations and we made this so-called Schienenbrücke, so the bridge with the trains. Berlin participated in that and we uh, supported with ambulances, with medical support, with tons and tons of food and also clothes. And this is something we do with the support of the Berlin citizens. So we, we have a very strong solidarity, open arms. For the long run, it is important to keep up this solidarity because, of course, many people realize the consequences of the war now. So we have to do both, to be in solidarity, but also to support our people in managing with these consequences. How much has your job changed due to the war? We try to manage that in a permanent crisis modus, I can say. So we try really hard to bring all this together, but maybe the new normal is the crisis, I don't know. So we hope that we will get in a good way through autumn and winter. And we have made a special Berlin program for support our citizens in dealing with the consequences, up to 1.5 billion euro. And we will support our economy, support our people who really are very worried about how to make things functioning. Or some people say, okay, we, we don't know how to afford this. And we have to support them. We use the national government money, but we also do something from the city. Do you feel like Berlin's residents and citizens understand, because you mentioned the solidarity earlier, do they understand that, for example, this rise in energy costs that everyone is worried about, that this is a price to pay for a much longer-term safety goal for the continent? Or is that a hard sell? Because I can imagine that, of course, citizens will have... They'll be worried about their own needs, as we all are. Do you have a hard time trying to explain that long-term view? I imagine that has to be challenging. Yeah, of course. We have talked about this morning with the other mayors that it's really, really important to keep that issue in Ukraine and all the things connected to that, that we keep this topic on the agenda and that we keep on the agenda the fight which is done there for solidarity, for peace, for freedom, for democracy, for the independence of Ukraine. This is not only a fight for Ukraine, it's a fight for all of us because these are the European values and we have to explain that if this will not be successful, it will be a problem also for all of us because the freedom of democracy uh, has also to be defended This war in Ukraine affects us all. As the winter approaches, cities are starting to feel the consequences of the war even more, which can make the task of keeping citizens engaged challenging. For Remigus Shimashis, the mayor of Vilnius, it's about finding other energy alternatives. His nation was one of the first to stop the use of Russian gas. Of course, the winter will be tough. And for our central heating, it's uh, tough, but not as bad as for electricity and gas. Because for central heating, again, there are more opportunities and we are using uh, biomass quite extensively and its potential, which allows to have better prices. But for the gas, even though it's no Russian gas and we got rid of Russian gas first once in, in the European Union, it's still the price is very, very high. And electricity as well, the price is very high. So, of course, there are schemes to help residents, but for businesses, it's a big challenge. Of course, we will survive, but of course, it will be challenging in winter. 
Throughout the summit, mayors and officials made a point of ensuring that there was one clear message. The war Ukraine is fighting is one for European values. And so a unified approach between cities is imperative. My name is Erem Velia. I'm the mayor of Tirana, Albania. I think it's very simplistic to treat this whole operation as several countries, several cities helping a country or a city need, like the case of Kiev, Kharkiv, Mykolaiv, and all of Ukraine. Because I think if we fail to realize that this should be more than just setting food and setting tents and setting glass sheets, that this is literally about defending a way of life in Europe, then I think we haven't understood anything. This is not just the next charity project. And we know this very well. Albania was host to the Jewish population. We were the only country in Europe, majority Muslim, right? who had 10 times more Jews at the end of the war than the beginning. We were key in the transit process of the Afghan airlift. 4,000 Afghans transited for a year through Albania as they were being processed for Canada and the United States. Some decided to stay. We host the official Iranian opposition. The former Camp Liberty from Iraq that was being shelled constantly moved to Albania. It's called the MAC, the Mujahideens. Because of that, Albania suffered several cases of failed terrorist attempts sponsored by the state of Iran and a huge, somewhat successful, from the Iran point of view, cyber attack operation, which paralyzed our central and local governments for about two months this summer. So being genuine on these matters also comes with a price. And all I'm trying to say is that countries and cities should be prepared. Meeting President Zelensky this summer I think uh, he made a great point when he said, I had two fears in life. One fear was that we're going to be invaded. That already happened. The second fear is that we may be forgotten. And that could happen. Clearly, some people forgot this in Italy. If you look at the outcome of the elections, clearly some people forgot this in uh, other uh, places where populists, the fatigue, you know, being nervous at the gas pump. So instead of changing our way of life and saying, look, we're going to ride more, we're going to bike more, we're going to walk more, we're saying, no, no, no. We're tired. Let's go back to doing the usual thing. And I think unless we think of these perils, so the fatigue in our societies, but also the price we may pay, maybe not in the terms of heavy shelling and missiles, but in terms of digital infrastructure, most of our cities run our water, our grids, now digitally, which is great for modernization. It's great to have open source systems where the citizens can have transparency of our budgets, the way we work. But like in the case of Albania, it makes us very vulnerable. We're digitally naked in this uh, world. We need to buffer several defenses, democratic defenses in our society and cyber defenses. One is about mentality. The other one is technical. And I think we can always find money for the cyber defenses, but to defend our democratic principles, that will take a lot more hard work. One of the many particularities of the humanitarian crisis created by Russia's aggression is that almost all those fleeing Ukraine are women and children, something Europe had not seen at this scale ever before. Overnight, cities and the municipal services were pushed into overdrive, trying to accommodate these families, find schools for the children and provide the necessary medical and psychological support. My name is Philippe Corry. I'm the deputy director for the region of Europe and Central Asia for UNICEF. We had, uh, in 20 days, as many refugees as for four years of war in Syria. So the magnitude of this tsunami of children and their mothers and grandmothers was enormous. And, you know, people were, because of the EU giving them three years of visa, access to services and so on, they were going naturally to cities, municipalities for support, for education, for primary health care. So we had to organize these municipalities because they were not 
organized for such a magnitude in terms of their own capacity and services. So with UNICEF, we decided to strengthen systems capacity, whether you have central systems, like the Ministry of Health systems, the health systems itself, the doctors, the nurses, the pediatrician, the psychologist, were not as many as needed with this. Uh, similarly for education, not enough teachers, even for preschool, a crash. So we had to uh, make sure that we could connect the government systems, the social workers, the teachers, the doctors, to the municipalities that are where families are going for services and support. So we could connect also the capacity of the municipalities, protecting children from trafficking. A border control staff, even in the European Union, are not used to that. Municipal police in cities, the same, because abuse is all around potentially. So we really need to protect these children and unaccompanied minors. There are more and more of them because of the intensification of the war. Traditionally, I think it's safe to say that people would associate UNICEF not as an agency that tends to operate in Europe, mostly. So I'm curious, we're here at a meeting with mayors and leaders at a local level. Was it a new challenge to explain to European leaders that, yes, UNICEF has to help you? For many, it was also a wake-up call of uh, the reality that was about to hit. Yeah, so right, because I remember the early hours when uh, we had to develop in six months an offshore operations around these key areas, education, health, uh, you know, uh, social protection, so that at the end, these countries could be at scale in terms of uh, hosting these communities, these children and mothers and grandmothers that they were having uh, their border suddenly. So that was something that was interesting because I went to knock on all the mayor's doors, the mayors you have seen here, they know me, they remember the first meeting, and children Africa, you know, why on earth are they coming to visit us? And I was telling them, you know, we are used to refugees crisis, and particularly when you have children and their mothers, it's a very specific requirement there. And we are not, I mean, I can see it will be huge for you. And you have seen some of the mayors saying that. And when they understood, similarly for the government, the government was a bit you know, more of a donor uh, to UNICEF. And seeing UNICEF Africa coming, they understood so much that now we are working, for instance, in the Czech Republic with all the key ministries. We have joint work plans with the Ministry of Social Affairs and uh, Families around social workers and the child guarantee with the Ministry of Health around training the health system, the refugees, doctors, nurses, pediatricians, so that they could also be allowed to work as doctors and nurses and so on, because the capacity of the Czech system in terms of health, or taking this example, is the same in other countries, is, you know, limited compared to the scope of uh, needs of this new population. I mean, for municipalities, it's huge. So we had to match this capacity at the central level, but at municipality level, and connect you know, the system so that uh, a mayor could be allowed to use this building, this building and this other building. And similarly for education, teaching, allowing these multi-pass ways of learning so that a child from Ukraine can still continue the curriculum online. At the same time, going to school in Poland, in the Slovak Republic, Czech Republic, Hungary, to interact with others, maybe learn Polish, maybe learn the history of the Czech Republic and so on. So that there is um, an inclusion dynamic that is super important. And of course, the psychosocial support. So the fact that we could connect central system with municipality system and civil society system allowed us to do as much as we could of a mitigation in terms of uh, the challenges and uh, leveraging everyone's capacity as a whole society approach. And, uh, and that's more sustainable because it's an investment in systems that are there to stay for the migrant child, for the Roma child, for the child with disability, for the child from the poorest household, 
in the Czech Republic, in the Slovak Republic, in Hungary, in all these countries around. So it's very important that we see it as a long-lasting investment in children's system in these countries. There is a lot that Europe can learn in terms of support for children. So this is indeed a chance that we have to uh, leverage or seize so that we could build up further the child most vulnerable children system for the long run. So that's also what this leveraging of the refugee crisis in terms of uh, development investment is all about, actually. But how far does solidarity go? Images of young Russian men fleeing their country have flooded the media since Vladimir Putin declared a partial mobilization. But the deputy Czech foreign minister told the summit that it wouldn't be prudent to grant these men humanitarian refugee status. Here's the mayor of Prague again. I understand this is a rather controversial topic, but I completely understand the attitude of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in this you have to, of course, look at the individual cases. So, for example, if there is a, let's say, student of music arts and she came, let's say, even before the invasion, I think there is basically no problem why she couldn't stay. And she's from Russia. I don't think there is a problem why she couldn't stay and study the classical music here in Prague. I think there is a difference from a man who simply wants to escape Russia because now the Russia state does not allow them to just watch the war in TV, but they want to personally participate in this thing and they simply do not want to because they just want to watch it in the TV. So I completely understand the attitude of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in this matter. Eurocities is one of the other international organizations that has stepped in to act almost like a liaison between authorities, funding and mayors wanting to support Ukrainian cities. This network of over 200 mayors works to unlock EU funds and acts as a spokesperson for the needs of municipalities and their governments. With Ukraine, they were one of the first on the ground. Hello, my name is Andrei Zabschak. I'm the Secretary General of Eurocities. Eurocities was very active under the impulsion also of our president, Dario Nadella, the mayor of Florence, to organize very quickly solidarity actions in all our different cities. We had in March an event of 150 cities where we bring together our citizens and to explain that we have to stand up and to support Ukraine in this uh, illegal war by Russia. And it's not only about declaring solidarity, but also about exchanging practices about how to welcome the refugees in our cities. Together with UNICEF, we exchange good practices. And then you mentioned the mission that we organized together with eight European mayors to Ukraine to uh, actually sign a memorandum of understanding in order to say that we want to uh, be part about uh, rebuilding the Ukrainian cities in a more sustainable way. So we went there in order to see what are actually the needs of the Ukrainian cities, what does uh, it need to be rebuilt, how many schools, how many hospitals, how many infrastructures for transport and so on. And uh, now we are about to identify what are the resources from the other European cities 
how we can imagine a city-to-city cooperation, for example, having our experts in the other European cities mentoring Ukrainian cities, maybe also getting some private funds from our citizens, from local companies or from international investors. And to say that actually we already start right now to uh, develop some capacity building for the Ukrainian cities to be ready when it's possible to rebuild the cities and to have actually a Ukraine that is uh, even more sustainable in the future and is uh, even more part of the European family tomorrow. So it's that idea that uh, the rebuilding is not just to create a structure to replace what was lost, but actually can be an opportunity to have cities be more sustainable, to solve a lot of the problems that might have existed planning-wise. Yeah, it's exactly this aim that we pursue. It's, of course, sometimes when you have this urgent need to rebuild a city that you tend to go very quickly. And sometimes you uh, build cities with a lower quality even than before because there is this urgent need. And this is something we really need to avoid because in peril of this dramatic war in Ukraine, we have still climate change happening and we need to adapt our cities and the Ukrainian cities as well. So, for example, Eurocities is very much involved in managing the 100 mission cities that want to become carbon neutral and the knowledge that we have from these cities we want to transfer it directly to Ukraine so that the schools, the hospitals, the infrastructures that we have built there already integrate all the knowledge to make uh, the cities more carbon neutral and more inclusive. But it's important to remember that support comes in many shapes and sizes. While monetary assistance is crucial, mayors have also been collaborating to provide Ukrainian cities with other, more intangible things such as expertise and sharing best practices, as the mayor of Tirana explains. We're not a wealthy uh, country or city, so we probably can't give billions. But millions we can give, and we are giving. We've already approved in city council funds to rebuild schools, kindergartens, and nurseries in our sister city, Kharkiv, which has been under major aggression, artillery and rockets. So clearly impossible to build now, but we have the funds, and as soon as victory uh, approaches, then we will start rebuilding immediately. Now, our experience from severe earthquakes in 2019, which destroyed swaths of the city, was first to humanize the early response. The early response should not be about putting tents and getting people to feel like refugees in their own land, in their own country, but by saying, well, wait a minute, it's probably even cheaper and more dignified to get people hotels and apartments so they still live in the ecosystem without being treated as you know, second class in temporary shelters, in gyms or in tents. But second, we said, how can this opportunity where, just like Ukraine, we had a lot of old Soviet-style pillbox type of infrastructure where you couldn't tell whether it was a prison or a kindergarten or a research institute because they all looked the same. So we said, well, why don't we get the best people out there? Why don't we get the BRK Ingelses and the Stefano Boyeris and why don't we get the Mario Cucinellas and the Henrik Larsons and all these people to say we had a major, major tragedy, but why don't we implement the 15-minute city that everybody talks about right here? where people don't have to go to downtown or travel distances, where they can have within 10 or 15 minutes the bakery, the pharmacy, the health center, the bank, the local administrative office for whatever affairs they have with the state. And it's been working uh, wonders. So we learned a lot. And maybe we are modest in our hard power, but we're pretty good in our soft power, which is collecting these brilliant minds. And just like we mentioned the case of Irpin and the Boyeri architects, 
to start preparing for projects. And as President Zelensky said, look, everyone is offering money to Ukraine, but we just don't want to throw stuff at uh, doing the same old but now new concepts. Let's do something brand new also project-wise. So there I think we could use this ending of the war, I hope, I see, and prepare for these projects so then when the donor community arrives, the money is not wasted, but it goes exactly to a project that has already been designed and ready for implementation. Before we headed off, we wanted to give the last words to the mayor of Prague and ask what's his vision for where his city is headed next. We want to work on the concept of the 15-minute city here in Prague or the city of short distances. And the main reason is because actually Prague is a very monocentric city. Everything is in the center. The whole transport in the public transport is center-oriented. Therefore, if you want to move from one district to another, and those are, let's say, adjacent districts, more or less adjacent, the problem is you have to go through the city center. So this creates excessive amount of demand for transport, which is basically unnecessary. So, for example, one of my plans is to make tram around the city. So a circular tram, let's say. And we have also plans for the circular metro, but that's for decades. But the circular tram is something that could be finished, for example, in the year 2035, and it wouldn't cost a fortune. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Today's episode was produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Damien Rice with Prague. Thank you for listening, City Lovers. <laughs> <laughs>